Our sermon today is taken from Ecclesiastes 9, verses 1 through 12. This is the word of God. But all this I laid to heart, examining it all, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. Whether it is love or hate, man does not know. Both are before him. It is the same for all, since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice. As a good one is, so is the sinner, and he who swears is as he who shuns an oath. This is an evil that all is done under the sun, that the same event happens to all. Also, the hearts of the children of man are full of evil, and madness is in the hearts while they live, and after they go to the dead. But he who is joined with all the living has hope, for a living dog is better than a dead lion. For the living know what they will die, but the dead know nothing. And they have no more reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. Their love and their hate and their envy have already perished, and forever they have no more share in all that is done under the sun. Go, eat your bread with joy, and drink your wine with merry heart, for God has already approved that you do. Let your garments be always white, let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun because that is your portion in life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might, for there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in shoal to which you are going. Again, I saw that under the sun the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor the bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge, but time and chance happen to them all. For man does not know his time. Like fish, they are taken in an evil net, and like birds, they are caught in a snare. So the children of man are snared at any evil time when it suddenly falls upon them. Thus says the Lord. Thank you. Friends, it's a good joy for me to be able to be here and to be able to preach a chapter from a quite a tough book, right? A book that has brought us into a lot of questions, a book that has challenged us and confronted our beliefs, our worldviews about what life is, and how do we precisely understand the circumstances that we're going through. So just before we get to the sermon, how will we go to God in prayer? Pray with me. Dear Father in heaven, we know that the book of Ecclesiastes has not only taught us to face the harsh realities of life, but it has made us see that life can indeed be very painful, that life can indeed be very unpredictable, and life can make us scream that life is unfair. But Father, as we go through it now, Lord, teach us today to see and to believe in your wisdom, that you are sovereign over all the affairs of life, and that trusting you in spite of our circumstances is worth it. Father, as we look at your text today, quite a difficult one. May you be gracious unto us. May your spirit sanctify our hearts, our minds, so that they may be in accordance to your word, not accordance to our will. Help me communicate your truth today faithfully, Father, with clarity and humility, through your spirit and in Christ's name. Amen. Good morning, friends. So we're continuing today. Uh, with our sermon series on the book of Ecclesiastes. And we're actually reaching towards the end of the book. 
right? An important chapter in the book of Ecclesiastes where the preacher or Solomon here, of which I'll be referring to as, right? So it's not the literal preacher, but it's the preacher who actually is the one uh, recollecting his reflections about what life is and what he's saying about what life is, right? And we are reaching towards the end where he's about to give us a bottom line summary of all that he's trying to teach us in the first eight chapters. But for those of you who probably just joined us today, if this is your first time here, just as a quick recap, Ecclesiastes is a reflection, again, of King Solomon. And in his reflections, he is trying to seek, he's trying to find out what it means to live life well in a world that's gone terribly wrong. On the one hand, all men seek happiness. And this is what Solomon is actually seeking as well. What does it mean for me to live life well under the sun? But as he is searching out and exploring the circumstances of life, on the other hand, he's observing that, number one, none of us are completely happy. And number two, there is something off about this world. And we all know it. There is a great gap between what we want and what we get. So what do we do about this gap, right? So that is the tension here, right? And this is what Ecclesiastes has been forcing us to see, has been forcing us to think about. And there's really only two main ways that we deal with this gap. The first way is to actually to suppress the other part of it. In order for me to be happy, I got to forget my pain. I got to forget my hurt. I got to focus more on what makes me happy. And if we look at our culture's obsession with the self, it's not hard to see that. That we are obsessed with the idea that we must take control of our thoughts, that we must take control of our days, we must believe in ourselves, and only if we do these things, life and good things will happen unto us. But on the other hand, the other way, this is what Solomon has been offering to us. That the only way that we can deal with this gap is if we do not suppress the reality of death. We only can find happiness, we only can find joy if we engage the reality of death and the uncertainties of life. So this is what pre the preacher is going to give us today. right? How do we deal with this? And know that the preacher's way to finding joy in this world is actually the narrow way. It's the unpopular way. This world does not love the way that the preacher thinks about this gap. And we are living right in this cross-section, right, between the world and the way of wisdom. So how do we find joy? How do we find happiness in a world that has gone terribly wrong? Three points that I want to point us uh, towards today from our text. First point, finding joy in the certainty of death and the uncertainties of life. Second point, finding joy in the gift of life. And point three, finding joy in contentment. Let us go to our first point. Finding joy in the certainty of death and the uncertainties of life. Friends, just before we get into a greater detail of the text, it's important for us to first get the context of the passage. Look with me at verse one. It says here, but all this I lay to heart, examining and all. This is the preacher saying, this is what Solomon is actually reflecting about to reinforce the in in intensity of his search for the meaning of life. The intensity of his search for what makes me happy, what makes me joyful in a world that has gone wrong. 
right? And it continues how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. Whether it is love or hate, man does not know. The hand of God in the Old Testament symbolizes the power of God, right? And here we see that it's being contrasted with the powerlessness of man. Man does not know the ways of God, he says. And therefore, this sets up the context for us that though there is something wrong with the world we live in, God is still in control. That we are not the one in control, but God is. What is it specifically that God is in control that man is not? Here, the preacher gives two main observations about the reality of life that he cannot seem to escape. And it is one that pushes him to actually question, how do I again find hope, find joy in a world that's gone terribly wrong? The first observation is the certainty of death. And the second observation is the uncertainties of life. Let's look at the first observation. Look with me at verse verse 2 where he observes, it is the same for all. Since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and the evil, to the unclean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice. And we know here that the same event being referred to in this passage is referring to death, physical death. In God's world, death is a certain event that will happen to all of us here in this room. And when it comes, when it comes finding you, it happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and the evil, the clean and the unclean, the one who sacrifices, the religious people, and him who does not sacrifice, or the ones who are not that religious. Death comes to all, and it does not care, right, all these things that we have actually been pursuing. And we're back in the tension immediately. We want happiness, but at the same time, we know that death, death has a very painful sting. And some of us here in this room, we might know that sting very well. When death comes near us, not only to us personally, but when death comes near to our loved ones. Friends, remember how we said that there are only two ways that we can deal with this. We either repress it, we either try to seek ways that we want to ignore the ways of death, or we try to engage it, which is the way of wisdom. And I think this is going to be helpful for us in the ways that we repress the reality and the certainty of our death, right? We repress death in basically two ways. And I will be coming back to these categories, and hopefully this will help us think about death and think about how are we supposed to engage it as opposed to repress it. But the world repress the certainty of death in two ways. First, let's call it the way of the young and restless. The young here is definitely not just referring to an age. You can still be of age, but still be young and restless. Right? And we repress the certainty of death if you are a part of the young and restless by saying that, hey, death is still a far event for me. I don't have to think about death that much because death is for those who are not young anymore. Life seems to be a delightful journey with no end in sight. It's just prospect after prospect, right? And we live in this culture 
where we're so infused with our ambitions, where we're so driven to find ways that we can have meaning in life. And therefore, for the for this preacher to actually call us to think and contemplate about death is something that is very foreign to us. It's something that we are very allergic to. Or the second way that we repress this, the second way that we suppress this, let's call this the way of the depressed cynic. All right, this is what we might think what Ecclesiastes is trying to make us be, where life is just depressing, life is just vanity, and therefore the way that we should think about this gap, to think about the reality of death, is just to accept it. Right? Life seems to be bleak, life seems to be morbid, life then becomes dark, we grow unsympathetic because death is just one among many other things that will happen to this life. Is this you, right? Or are you the young and restless where we suppress the reality and the certainty of death by trying to ignore it instead of engaging it? Here, Solomon is offering to us, is encouraging us that the only way to find joy is if we truly enjoy it. And let's call this the way of the wise and joyful, right? Wisdom calls us to engage the certainty of death, not as the young and restless, where death is distant, not like the depressed cynic as well, that death is insignificant, but the wise and joyful looks at death in the eyes and says that we can mourn when death comes near us. We can mourn with those where death is very near to us. But at the same time that we can mourn and we can be in sorrow, that we can be in pain, Solomon here encourages us that we can still have joy in spite of the hurt we experience. How can we find this, right? How can we find joy in spite of the sorrow and pain that we go through in this life? We'll come back to that, but Solomon is not done here. Right, Because Solomon presses on, not only that death is certain, but under the sun, life seems to be uncertain and random. Look at verses 11 to 12 with me. It says, again, I saw that under the sun, the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge, but time and chance happen to all. For man does not know his time, like fish that are taken in an evil net, and like birds that are caught in a snare. So the children of man are snared at an evil time when it suddenly falls upon them. What are these verses saying? Verses 11 to 12 tell us that if you think that you are in control of your life, it's merely an illusion. Under God's world, those who are fastest don't necessarily win the race. Those who are strongest don't necessarily win the battle. Man does not know his time. Death can suddenly fall upon them. Life is really and truly, it can be tragic for some of us. And as we think about this gap, right? What wisdom is trying to do here is to expose the questions that we actually have about the meaning of life. When we look at our experiences or the experiences of the people we know, don't we also have this question? Why is it that responsible parents have troublesome kids? Or the most irresponsible parents have excellent kids, for example. Why is it that healthy and young people, the ones who get cancer, while unhealthy people, 
live long lives. And we get nervous when there seems to be no rules or formula of how life works, isn't it? And here, if you are the young and restless, you'll feel so anxious, right? You'll keep pretending that life is under your control because you think that life is still something that you want to pursue and that life offers you a lot of prospect in the future. If you are the cynic and depressed, right, you'll also feel pressured by the reality of death, by the randomness of life. But the way that you actually deal with this is that you're going to force yourself to just accept it. Just accept that death is true. Accept that life is tragic. And we see that both ways are ways that we repress death because both ways are afraid of death. We get scared when we think of death. And this is where wisdom calls us to challenge us. That if you truly want to be wise, that if we truly want to look at life in what it is and yet still find joy and happiness, right? It is not found in your circumstances, but it's found in the fact that we are not in control and God is. That we are just mere creatures and God is our creator. We don't know, but we put our trust in God. How do we find joy in the certainty of death and in the uncertainties of life? We must accept that we are limited, that we are made to be creatures and not made to be God. But here's where we stumble into the deeper problem, right, friends? We get nervous here. Now I'm nervous. Do you find God to be trustworthy? Right? Do we truly find God to be trustworthy? Can we truly submit to a God who is in control yet seems to use that power to bully his creatures with pain, suffering, and death? And if the way of the wisdom is to find joy in the certainty of death and in the certainty of death, uncertainties of life, it means that it's forcing us to trust God. But how can we trust God? What is a worldview that makes death something that we're not scared of, but it's something that we can embrace? It's something that we can call friend. It's something that we can listen to instead of something that we ignore. This is the heart of wisdom. This is the heart of Ecclesiastes, right? Which brings us to our second point. Finding joy in the gift of life. Friends, the way of joy makes death a friend, not an enemy. We learn in chapter 7, verse 2, where it is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting, for this is the end of all mankind. Why is it better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting? Right? Because if we truly listen to what death is saying, it can radically enable us to enjoy life. What has death communicated to us so far? It's communicated to us that man is limited, that God is infinite. It's communicated that man is not in control over the affairs of life, but God is the one in control. And here in the second point, death is trying to communicate to us that everything about life is a gift of grace. Look at verse 3 with me. He gives the reason why everything about life is a gift of grace. Verse 3 reads this. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that the same event happens to all. Also, the hearts of the children of man are full of evil, and madness is in their hearts while they live, 
and after that, they go to the dead. What is death trying to tell us in this verse? Does it say that the reason why we look at death and the reason why we see injustice is because God is unjust and God is evil? No. But rather, it tells us that the heart of the children of man are full of evil. Because of our sin, death becomes our deserved punishment. This view that man is a sinner before God, before a holy God, is the only way that it can enable us to enjoy life, primarily by reshaping our view of God. If we truly believe that death is a just punishment for our sin, that there, there are only two ways, right? There will be two ways that it will reshape our view of God. God is no longer the first way. God is no longer a tyrant who uses his power to bully us. Right? But rather, he is a king who reigns with power and justice. And secondly, our view of God is no longer one that sees him as love, unloving, sees him as stingy for giving limitations on man. Rather, he is now a merciful king. How is he merciful? He's merciful in that his holy wrath was restrained when Adam and Eve disobeyed him in the garden. God made it clear to Adam that he would surely die, right, if he had disobeyed his command in the garden. Yet when Adam and Eve ate the fruit, when they disobeyed God, they did not immediately die, though they experienced spiritual death. The full effect of death was restrained by God. Friends, this is very important because in a world that has gone terribly wrong, joy can only be found when we truly believe in our hearts that anything other than death is a gift. If you are the young and restless, we'll, back, we'll, we'll come back to these, we'll, we're back to these categories, right? If you are like the young and restless, you might function as if life is not fundamentally a gift, but life is a gain. Life is something you deserve. We live with a sense of entitlement, right, that preaches to us all the time. I deserve bread on the table. I deserve honor. I deserve a spouse. Or perhaps I deserve a better family. And we realize that if we are like the young and restless, the more our wants are fulfilled, the more we will be left wanting more. We'll never find joy. Because we will always be in this vicious cycle of having wants and having unmet wants. Blaise Pascal, which is a Catholic theologian, in the, um, back then, right, is right when he says this. The soul of man's unhappiness is that he does not know how to stay quietly in his room. The soul of man's unhappiness is that he does not know how to stay quietly in his room. Why is that such a profound observation? Because we're living in a culture, right, where happiness and joy must always be when your, when your wants and when your needs are always met, when your expectations of life are always met in what you experience in life. If you are the young and restless, you'll never be able to experience the joy that is offered here. But on the other hand, right, if you are like the depressed cynic, right, life is not a gift, but it's just pure meaninglessness. 
Reading Ecclesiastes might, again, make us think that the wise is like the cynic. A lot of times in our conversations, whether that's in community group or whether that's us talking about the book of Ecclesiastes, meaninglessness is kind of like the word that we use to describe what life is after studying this book, right? And yet, we get so tempted that if life is meaningless, therefore, everything that I do becomes meaningless. Life and death, yeah, sure. I'm ready to die, right? And we just say that everything in life, sure. It's not something that really, really calls us to engage it and really, really, it makes us grow unsympathetic to the things and the circumstances of life that we're actually going through. But this, the way of the wise and joyful, right? Life is an utter gift from God. If we truly believe that, we can be grateful in all our circumstances. We don't become enslaved to the good things of the world, right? Like money, family, reputation. Because these things do not belong to you. These things are not your gains. These things are not because you deserve them. But these things are an utter gift of grace from God to you. And knowing that life is not a gain but purely a gift. Only the wise can truly mourn with those who are weeping, right? Only the wise can truly sympathize and empathize with those who are hurting. Why? Because precisely we know that if life here on earth is a gift, this life is not eternal. This life here on earth is not our home. The young and entitled, the young and restless will always pray for God to change their circumstances. The depressed cynic will not even bother to pray because suffering too is meaningless and insignificant. But the wise, on the other hand, can mourn and weep and at the same time have a deep joy, a deep gratitude, a sense that everything in life that we go through, even all the uncertainties that you are going through right now, even the pain and the suffering that we are enduring deep in our hearts, these two are a means to be grateful, not a means to not be grateful. Friends, this is the kind of joy that the preacher wants to show us in verses 7 to 10 that is actually sandwiched between verses 1 to 3 and verses 11 to 12, right? Verses 7 to 10 frees us from the fear and anxiety of our changing circumstances. It frees us to rest in a quiet frame of mind in spite of our changing circumstances, not because our circumstances are going well. What does this joy look like? How do we gain this joy, perhaps? Let us go to our final point, finding joy in contentment. Let me read verses 7 to 10 for us. It says, Go and eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. Let your garments be always white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun because that is your portion in life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might for there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in show to which you are going. The kind of joy that the author here is talking about is not the kind of joy that is ecstatic it's not the kind of joy that we see in this world. It's not waiting for the next big thing, right? It's the kind of joy that 
it's, that, it's, it's not that kind of joy that grounds you, right, in spite of your changing circumstances. And the kind of joy that the author is not talking about here is, is, is not the joy that is founded in reality, right? That though reality might sting, the reality might be painful, that joy can still be one that we experience. But what is the kind of joy that is, the, the author is talking about here? Right? The kind of joy that I think the author is talking about here is a joy called contentment. It's the kind of joy that finds the simple things in life to be extraordinary. Right? The bread you eat, the wine you drink, the clothing you put on, the spouse you have, the work you're in now, thanksgiving for the Christian becomes every day. I thought this is helpful. Jeremiah Burroughs, a Puritan preacher, defines contentment this way. Contentment is an inward condition of the soul, a quiet frame of mind which surrenders to and delights in God's wise disposal in every condition. Let me say that again. Contentment is an inward condition of the soul, a quiet frame of mind which surrenders to and delights in God's wise disposal in every condition. What a beautiful definition of contentment. It's an inward condition of the soul. It's not dependent on how well our circumstances are. It's a quiet frame of mind. It's not busy with so many voices of fear, anxiety, and worry. It surrenders to, it delights in God's wise disposal in every condition. Not only for some conditions, but for all, for every condition. Friends, isn't this inward quietness the joy that we all long for? Isn't this inward quietness the joy that we actually look for in this life? And even Solomon, even the preacher here says, better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and striving after wind. Ask yourself this question today. Would you rather be a person who gets all you want, but is constantly worried and anxious about them? Isn't that much of our suffering as well, where we are questioning, why is this happening to me? What is going to happen to me? Why does God let me go through the things I'm going through now? Or would we rather be a person who constantly is rested in knowing that the Lord is our shepherd and that we shall not want. The young and entitled won't get this, right? The young and restless won't get this. He or she will always be disappointed and surprised by life. The cynic won't get this as well because he or she will be so numb to life. Only the wise gets to understand, gets to taste what a joy so deep called contentment. The wise accepts his creatureliness. The wise accept his sinfulness. He accepts God's graciousness that everything now we experience can be called grace. Paul says this well in Philippians chapter 4, verses 11 to 13, right? And he says it this way. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I have learned the secrets, the secret of facing plenty and hunger, 
abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Paul knew his limitations. He knew he had sinned against God. And he knew that he only deserved death. Yet God gave him life. Everything about him was an utter gift of grace. Contentment is a powerful and beautiful virtue, isn't it? It is circumstances proof. And this is what the preacher in Ecclesiastes is trying to make us see that if we truly engage the reality of death, if we truly engage how this world has gone so broken because of our sin, we live, we can live life in joy, in contentment. It empowers us to enjoy our slice of bread, even when others might have a slab of steak. It empowers us to love our spouse unconditionally because it frees us from envying and comparing what we have with what others have, right? It empowers us to rejoice in our suffering even when others might not suffer like you. And it empowers us to enjoy the portion that God has gifted us with, not because we deserve our portion, but because we only deserve death. And yet, God in his sovereign will has gifted us life. How then do we get this power? How then do we get the strength to find joy in being content? How can we grow in contentment? Friends, I think this is important that we remember this as we are studying the book of Ecclesiastes and as we are reaching towards the end of this book. Ecclesiastes is the one book in the Bible which asks the question, that all the other 65 books in the Bible set out to answer. And we know that the main theme of Ecclesiastes has been this question. What is it that I gain from all my toil under the sun? There is a sense of frustration. What is there for me to gain? How can I embrace the reality of life if death is coming my way? And implicit in the book of Ecclesiastes is also this question. And this is, I feel, I think, the secret of finding joy and contentment. It's to ask this question, what do I gain from my coming death? Friends, it is no coincidence that Paul picks up this word gain, right? And he writes this in Philippians chapter 3, verses 7 to 9. And it's the passage that we read today earlier. And it says this, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness of God that depends on faith. Paul says that all his gains under son are vanity. And this gift is so precious to Paul. Why? Because everything in life is counted as loss compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. What does it mean to know Christ? To know Christ is to know that we have not only, begin, we have not only been given life, but we have been given eternal life by what Christ has toiled and worked under the sun. Like Paul, friends, we can find this joy. We can find joy and contentment because in Christ, 
we now can sing, whatever my God ordains is right. Whatever my God does, he is right. For I have no question to, for I have no place to question him. Who am I? Who are we as creatures to question his ways? And now if we are a sinner, if we are truly sinners before him, who are we to have received a righteousness that does not come from our toil, that do not come from our hard work, but a righteousness that comes from the work of Christ? And friends, final note, in Christ, we have now been given an eternal feast that is to come. And until that feast comes, right, it empowers us, it gives us the power for us to enjoy the simple things of life here on earth under the sun until we will be reunited with him. Friends, look forward to the greater feast where tears will be no more, where death will be no more, for they have passed away. And until that day comes, every meal here on earth becomes a foretaste of heaven. I'll close with a quote by a commentator of this verse, and I think this is helpful for us. Those without Christ often abandon themselves to eating and drinking because sometimes it looks as if that's all there is to do before we die. But those who love Christ, for those who are in Christ, cherish eating and drinking because it looks a little like what we will do after we die. Friends, do we have the confidence that when death comes, that death is our gain? That after death, we have eternal life with Christ. Don't be like the young and restless. Your sense of entitlement will kill your joy. Don't be like the cynic and depressed. Your sense of meaninglessness will also kill your joy. Be like the wise who surrenders his control and his wants to God and who is thankful for what God has given to him in Christ, who now can experience the freedom and the joy in contentment. Let us pray. Dear Father in heaven, it's so hard for us to be like the wise. It's so hard for us to be content in heart. When we look at in our hearts, when we look at everything that we desire, Father, we have so many wants. And yet, Father, we go through life as if we are the ones in control, as if happiness and joy can only come when our expectations are met. So, Father, I pray that you would cause us to see the vanity of life today under the sun, that there is really no gain so glorious than to know the surpassing worth of Christ Jesus, our Lord. May that be our prayer today, Father. May that be our longing today. May us be able to long for your kingdom to come, long for Christ to return, where we sinners will feast together with you, our Lord and Savior. Help us long and help us to be thirsty for that. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.